0: Week in, week out, since October the 7th, we've brought you some of the most prominent names speaking about Israel and giving you our live briefings. Tonight, with a live audience here in Israel, the journalist and author, Douglas Murray. I'm Michael Dixon, and this is Stand With Us TV. welcome, and thank you so much for being with us. We have a lot to get through, but I imagine most people have one thing on their mind first and foremost, certainly in this audience anyway, and that's that they've read and listened to much of your output. And so I'm going to begin by asking the question that's probably on everybody's mind, which is, at what age and why did you start caring about Israel?
1: Um, Well, I wish I had a simple explanation for this. There are some simple ways to explain it, but um, I first became politically aware, I suppose, when I was at university. And I left there in 2001 at Oxford. And in those days, universities were not very political places. Imagine that. <laughs> we were blissfully unaware of the world and were just trying to get educated vaguely. Um, uh, but the second intifada was happening uh, at the time, and then 9 11 happened, and I noticed several things. One was that everybody who was very against Israel was also very against America, very against Britain, almost without exception. You could absolutely chart it, you know. And so when when somebody was calling for, you know, free Palestine or whatever on the streets of London, they were always sort of, you know, and Britain's a settler colonial state and, you know, and everything's rotten here. They were the same people who said after 9-11, as somebody did in the London Review of Books, a prominent left-wing academic, said that America had it coming. And I found that quite swiftly people could be sort of, you could tell which camp they're in, really. And I noticed that Israel seemed to be the first target, but not the last, of of these people who hated Israel, but also hated my country of birth and also my now-adopted country of America. Um, But I suppose it's a number of other things. I mean, one is that when I started coming here, I I obviously saw something which I think most people, I'm sure there are some young people here who are interested in the media, maybe even going into the media. Um, One of the things that drives me as a writer is that I hate lies. Um, And you may wonder in that case, why would you go into the media? And that's a good question I'm still trying to work out. Um, But I hate falsehoods. I hate it particularly when somebody says something's not true and you've seen it with your own eyes. I was here in the 2006 Lebanon War, and I remember just the jarring disconnect between what was happening in Israel, what I saw happening here, and what I read in the international press about Israel. So those are some of the sort of intellectual explanations. I don't think they quite do it. Um because I also have an emotional attachment to this country and its people. Um, somebody said to me again the other week in Tel Aviv, uh, are you sure you're not Jewish? (laughs) And I said, well, I mean, it's possible that a really, really lost tribe, (laughs) about a thousand years ago arrived on the Outer Hebrides, on the way outskirts of Scotland and said, this looks as good as it gets. <laughs> What's not to like? The weather, the food, you know. <laughs> and then just stayed there.
0: Jews have had worse, by the way. Sure.
1: Um, but, anyhow, it seems to me unlikely, and I'm, I'm not doing any gene testing or anything, but um, but I have a, a deep attachment to this country, not least just because I admire it, and I admire its people. And... Uh, I have enough Israeli friends and loved ones and I just think that this country and its people are horribly treated and unfairly treated. And for me, you know, a lot lot of people in this era talk about equality or equity and I I think these are very vague concepts, whereas fairness is actually quite a clear one. I think Israel is treated unfairly um, and it has been all my life. And therefore, I think it's a duty of anyone, Jewish or not Jewish, to say that this is the case, and to call it out. And um, I regard that as not just being a duty, but a pleasure. Not least, by the way, I should say, because I say, um, sometimes people say, but don't you, you know, isn't it difficult? I think, well, n- no, I don't find it difficult to state facts as I see them. I was also brought up to know right from wrong. Um, but also, um, you make very good friends along the way and really good enemies. And, uh, these two things together are things I, I look for in life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, let's take us up to date. Where were you on October the 7th when you heard the news and what was your reaction?
1: Well, I, I was at my home in New York and, um, like a lot of people, uh, when I first started getting messages from friends in Israel and elsewhere, I just saw that, you know, okay, it's a, a lot of rockets, but everyone's used to that, sadly. Um, and then the story started coming in. Um, the next day in New York, I went down to a protest in Times Square, where there was a protest that was billed as a pro-Palestinian protest. and That seemed funny timing. And, uh, of course, it wasn't a pro-Palestinian protest at all, it was just anti-Israel. And there were actually people there with placards praising what had just happened. Um, And I was so disgusted by that, and uh, shamed. Uh, By the way, the, the lunatics in New York have really done themselves proud in recent months. I mean, they... Uh, If they want to get the American public on their side, they're really going about it the wrong way. Uh, They protested the Macy's parade, which is a happy family occasion going down Fifth Avenue. They also protested the lighting of the Rockefeller Christmas tree. Uh, I don't quite know where in the chain of thought you have to get from political cause to, I know how we're going to get them on side. We're going to attack their Christmas tree. But that's what these people have done. But I realized immediately that there were two things that made me want to come. One was the normal desire that I have to be here uh, in wartime. Although I should stress I don't only come here in wartime. Uh, if you see me at the El Al terminal, it doesn't mean something's bound to happen. We're not blaming you. Sometimes I'm just coming for a holiday. <laughs> but, uh, but I also... I had an early intuition that we were going to be lied to quite fast. And, and I think I was, I, was, I was right in that guess. Um, so I came here as soon as I could, and I've been here ever since, with a little bit of a break for Christmas. Um, and I have to say, there are a lot of delegations starting to come through. There have been more in the last month. And I'm really pleased to see that happening. Whenever I meet people in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, or whatever, from a delegation, I always say to them, you know, um, if you've been south or you've seen the site of the Nova Festival, um, if, you, if you go south, it, some of it, it's tough for a lot of people, particularly a lot of people who haven't seen this sort of thing before. Um, but it's necessary because people are going to have to bear witness to this for a long time to come. People are going to have to say what they've seen, and to remind the world. And my sense early on was that we were going to be moved on also from October the 7th. And that happened very fast. October the 7th, I think we got like less than
0: 24 hours. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It was almost in the same breath. And so, tell us about what your experience has been like in Israel since you came.
1: Well, um, I was actually meant to be back in Ukraine um, in October. I was there the year before, uh, covering the conflict there. So I've seen quite a lot of war zones. Um, I think even for somebody like me, I I was shocked, deeply shocked, um, by what I saw, what I've seen, and what I've heard. Um, And... If I could put that into a word, I think it's the glee with which the terrorists attacked. Um, I've seen quite a lot of human savagery, but gleeful savagery is um, unusual. Um, uh, psychopaths are a small percentage of any population but they are born arguably sociopaths are made and we saw an army of sociopaths and psychopaths attack israel that day and uh, i've i've been everywhere from the gaza a number of times around all the kibbutz and the site of the nova festival to the mortuaries uh, where they identify the bodies and um, and then up to the northern border Uh, to uh, see what is happening there, which I think is underestimated at the moment. Um, I've been in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria a a fair amount. Uh, A journalist from Tel Aviv said to me the other day, um, he wanted to do an interview in Tel Aviv, and he said, um, can I come to see you at 9 a.m. for breakfast? I said, well, actually, I'm having a bit of a late night tonight, and... He says, ah, I am too. A great, great girl I've met. (laughs) When we met the next day, he says, how was your night? I said, well, I was actually patrolling in the West Bank with the IDF. Uh, How was yours? Uh, (laughs) I love misunderstandings like that. Um, But I've tried to, I've tried to see the conflict in the round. I spent a lot of time with the survivors, the families, and the hospitals interviewing the heroes of the day, and the victims, who are often the same thing, Um, and a lot of time with the families of the hostages. I was at the uh, Sheba when the first children came back uh, that night. uh, which was one of the most moving things I've ever seen or been part of. To the extent I was, because to see uh, to see Tel Aviv shut down. I subsequently heard, by the way, from one of the helicopter pilots that there had been a great um, jostling among the pilots uh, to be the ones with the honour of bringing them back, mm. and um, and the, the streets ground to a halt. And uh, the public got out of their cars and they realized what was happening,
0: and started singing in the streets to the children, one of the most moving sights incredible and and, and you've been in Gaza itself as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that
1: i mean uh, it's it's war you know it's war, and war is is brutal and ugly as everybody who's seen it knows um, i uh, you know i've seen uh, I was just up from the Shifa. I, I was reminded by somebody I spoke to the other day from the Hadassah hospital, not to say the shefa hospital he said he said douglas don't don't put that word after it it's not we're the hadassah hospital that's shefa yeah. <coughs> facility maybe yeah. um, I was there when the humanitarian corridor was opened and um and uh, people coming south, including Something I think I was the first person to notice, which was the IDF, uh, the checkpoints. Uh, I, I was very interested. I have a wonderful cameraman who comes over with me, um, and uh, uh, called Moshe, who's a Hebrew speaker, obviously. And um, it was him who said, ah, listen to what the IDF is saying. They were, among other things, calling out in Hebrew, if you're a child and you understand this, jump. Make yourself known. Um... And uh, I've been in the tunnels, which taxpayer funds from a bewildering array of countries have paid for. Um, the uh, Gaza tunnel system is more extensive, as you know, than the London Underground, and probably slightly better kept until recently. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Uh, But it is quite something. I mean, I walked through the Eretz crossing some time ago to go and see a tunnel that had been unearthed. Um, this one built by Sinwa's brother, which there's a video of Sinwa himself traveling along, and it's for military sized vehicles. Um, I mean, it's astonishing. And, and I also use some, you know, some of my time to speak to politicians and others, but I try not to waste people's time by, you know.
0: And so you see all of this, you bear witness, you speak to survivors, you meet those who are grieving, you go into Gaza all with your own eyes. Then you return to New York and you see people holding up placards saying, resistance by any means necessary. And you see people who are tearing down posters of kidnapped kids. How are we to rationalize that?
1: Well, First of all, it's much better being here than in New York or London these days. And I mean that seriously because this is a country with a purpose and an understanding of reality and uh, a deep sense of unity and of seriousness as well as joy but uh, a lot of people it's 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 hard to ex- explain the extent to which in many western cities you know europe and america people just they live in a fantasy world utter fantasy world And um, many of them think they're doing something good. And they don't realize that in order to eat to do real evil, you quite often need to think you're doing good. Um, I was very moved when a friend from Britain came a couple of weeks ago. And he said to me, this is the first place I've seen hostage posters that haven't been torn down. Um, I spoke to a cousin of uh, uh, the Bebas Child, now one-year-old Who I I can't believe how the families have the courage to do this? Uh, You know travel around the the world speaking to politicians trying to get the release of their hostages and and this young man said He'd just been to Dublin to see the Taoiseach um, utter fool who um, uh, Was the one who said that the young hands girl had been lost and then was found Mm. (sighs) Um, Anyway this uh, relative of the BBS a member of the Bibas family, said to me that he was in Dublin to meet the Taoiseach and others, politicians, and uh, he actually saw one of the posters of the missing baby in their family that had been torn. What kind of a sick person do you have to be to do that? You have to really... A loved one should step in and tell you how malevolent you've become if you do that. Um, But, yes, a lot of these people... are. I mean, of course, you know, we deal with a small number of highly, highly ideologically motivated people. And that is definitely the case across the West now. You see very, very ugly ideologues. Some in positions of power, sadly. But you also have behind them a a different type of person. And behind them the largest cohort, which is the ignoramuses. and. This this can't be stressed enough that sometimes I think Israelis are too clever about trying to explain the situation here. You know, people think, if I just have exactly the best explanation for this, you know, well, well you see, 1973, and I think you you are trying to persuade people who know nothing, you know, as we've seen in some popular videos, who don't know what river they're chanting about, don't know what sea they're chanting about. If you... If you spun them around at you, you don't have to spin them around. Just ask them to point to this country on a map and they'd fail. Um, if you ask them, as you've done, you know, uh, how many Jewish states are there, they'll go, oh, I don't know, like 18 or something. They just, um, and by the way, I, I mean, this is a very serious problem, but not, not, not just for Israel. It's a problem for the West. In New York uh, State, um, public schools pay about $30,000 per student for their annual education, which is a lot of money, and proving that money alone doesn't make a good education. And um, there's just over 50% literacy rates in K through 12, standard basic literacy, and about 51% basic numeracy. So I take it as red that when somebody is chanting some malevolent idiocy on the streets of New York or London, the likelihood is that you could diddle them out of their change at a cash point and they wouldn't notice. They can get from 1 to 10, but after that it's all all a mystery. (laughs) Um, And that has serious repercussions. why, do, why would anyone be be told or be under the impression that they could sort out the problems of the Middle East if they can't read? <laughs> um, it's quite a tall order, that. Uh, and I do think that we, we have to bear in mind this astonishing ignorance in the rest of the world.
0: Uh, And and something we we really do need to bear in mind when we're speaking to them Uh, And of course the world then sees what's playing out here and what played out here recently was that South Africa took uh, Israel to the International Court of Justice and so what's your reaction to the case being brought and The way that case is going right now
1: Well, I mean First of all obviously South Africa is doing it as a proxy and a request of Iran Um, the South African government. Have you been to South Africa?
0: I have, and many people have here as well.
1: Good. I mean, in which case you'll know that it has some troubles of its own. (laughs) Um, uh, if if, If you can't keep the lights on in Johannesburg, and if you've got a government so corrupt... Uh, and um, uh, so much of your population living in utter destitution, uh, a destitution of a kind that it's quite hard to see outside of say the slums of India. I mean just poverty of, on an unimaginable scale. If you can't do the most basic things like provide for your people, you know, pretending that you're the international arbiter of justice is probably quite a nice day off. <laughs> um, but it's not a persuasive look in my in my view. Um, of course, the case is preposterous. Um, I think it's an interesting question as to you know, whether Israel should have deigned to even take part in the proceedings. And, and currently, it looks like it was a good idea to do so. Um, but I I believe that in general, the rule of judiciary over elected politicians is dangerous. And I believe that the, the idea of an unelected international juris, ju, uh, judiciary having say, over a war, is, is absolutely preposterous. And no country uh, really should put up with it, but certainly not a democracy. And certainly not a democracy fighting for its existence. Um, uh, it's, it's, but the whole thing, as everyone here knows, is, is just a profound smear campaign. Because you just need to drop, you just need to drop the word genocide into the conversation, as South Africa has done in a very prominent way, and, you know, you'll get people who'll, who might say, well, they're not doing genocide, but they're close. Or it's genocide-ish. Or, uh, And as I've often pointed out in recent months, I mean, there have been actual genocides going on all the time in our era. Nothing happens about it. I've uh, reported from the, uh, the genocide against Christians in the north of Nigeria by the Fulani militia and others, and the Western media doesn't care about it. I, uh, I once came back from reporting from North, uh, northern Nigeria, and I said to an editor, uh, I've got a very good story about a terrible atrocity that's just carried out a, a, a church of Christians on Easter Sunday, and a suicide bomb went in, and then they started mowing people down as they were running away. And, and I was told that the, the paper already had a story from Africa that week. Which, if I remember rightly, was from Cape Town. Uh, um, but my point is is that there's so many horrors that go on in, in the world and and it seems to me that what's happening with the so-called free Palestine movement, which South Africa has jumped on the back of, um, it, to some extent it's those it, it's the same thing that drove that sort of free Tibet movement a few decades ago. Does anyone remember free tibet it was um I remember I was growing up it was quite a thing. People had bumper stickers saying free Tibet and you know occasionally there'd be a small protest of people well meaning people and then it turned out that the Chinese Communist Party wasn't much influenced by bumper stickers in london and 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 and, and, and Tibet remained doggedly unfree and um, and to an extent what's the, the, the real um, horror of what the what the ICj and what South Africa has been trying to do is, that it knows interestingly enough that this country is vulnerable to international opinion and does care about this. You know, the, the charge, it's, it's like, it's its a charge intended to wound the Jewish people. That's what, that's what I, I, just, I the thing underneath the story is that it's intended to wound And, you know, as I say, the Chinese Communist Party puts a million people, Uyghur Muslims, into concentration camps. And, uh, I mean, nobody can influence the Chinese Communist Party, it seems. But they know that Israel is vulnerable on a moral level, as well as on a strategic level. And that's why they're doing it.
0: And so, from the International Court to the UN, and we recently heard... I don't think you'll fall off your chair at this, that UNRWA officials were involved personally in the October 7th massacre. What needs to happen to the United Nations?
1: Well, you know, like you, Michael, I've been, in this game for a while now, um, but I think if you'd have said to me, if we'd have had a conversation even six months ago and you said an UNRWA employee will be caught with um, kidnapped Jews in their house, I'd have thought, well, that's going to be a bit much. Um, For UNRWA employees to be involved in the massacre. The one good thing of the last couple of days is that finally there has been that effect that we've talked about before, but that of more than just America noticing there's something rotten. Because occasionally America notices there's something rotten in these international institutions. Israel knows there is and suffers on the front line from this. But, but America occasionally will wake up to this. But others, European countries, you know, Norway, these sort of countries just keep funding them anyway, because there's a sort of, well, you've got to give your money to someone (laughs) to do good in the world, or feel you're doing good. And, um, UNRWA is obviously the worst of them, but there are, there are, there are a lot of these UN institutions. Um, I was at a meeting with the families of the children hostages uh, in November with uh, UNICEF officials. And, you know, I mean, somebody said to one of the UNICEF officials, um, you know, UNICEF has one job, one job, to looking up, look after the welfare of children. And they did not bother for over a month to do anything about the kidnapped Jewish children. Nothing. As it turned out, the day that the uh, deputy head of UNICEF came to Jerusalem for that meeting, the head of UNICEF was in Cairo a couple of days earlier where she had a car crash. Not a very serious one, but she used this as an excuse not to come to Jerusalem. And it turned out during the meeting that she was actually in Gaza. And she was not there to look for the missing Jewish children. Um... So, there, there is a profound rot and sickness at, at the heart of a number of these institutions. And it's, it's, it's a deep problem because people in this country know it, and my goodness do we know it from the UNRWA case. But can we make the rest of the world understand? That's going to be a great challenge. I mean, look at the case with education in general, what, whatever happens after the war in Gaza. Who but this country is going to do anything to make sure the textbooks aren't the same? You know, I just you just see international body after international body failing at its task. Take the northern border as a very good example. I was as I say I was here in two thousand and six. I remember at the end of the war with UN resolution seventeen oh one, and you know when people talk about Israel abiding by international resolutions, you go well. The international community didn't abide by seventeen oh one, so it appears it's a pick and mix affair. Um, and uh, when I was up in Matula the other week, I saw the footage of. Um, UN uh, peacekeeping cars uh, coming along the border and uh, Hezbollah firing rockets into Israel and the UN peacekeeping vehicles did a u-turn and went back to their base So that's a useful peacekeeping mission Um, but you know with all of these bodies like I Don't see the amount of shame there should be I mean we pay for this Taxpayers in the rest of the world sometimes we, we we send troops and certainly we send aid Why isn't there deep deep rage about this? I think you've played a bit of that excerpt of me in a recent discussion with mr. Barghouti um, A man who seems to have developed an almost circular breathing technique because he won't shut up
0: <laughs> um, I believe you stopped him in that clip can, Not breathing, no, but you stopped
1: you, him you, talking. I didn't stop him breathing, no. It's important for the record. Um, <laughs> I've had opponents who've gone to prison, but none that have actually died. On, on the, 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 the. Um, but, but, but I think I said to Mr. Barghouti, I mean, um, look at these hundreds of millions of pounds that we've given to the PA that they spend on terrorist salaries and so on. I can't, I can't understand why the rest of the world isn't furious, at the, even if they don't care about it on a moral case. This is just on a fiscal base. Maybe there's something you could do better with the money than incentivizing people to go murder Israelis. How about that?
0: I agree with you. And so uh, I know you were telling me backstage. I, I think I'm allowed to say this, and if not, it's about to be too late. But uh, you came to us from being with our prime minister, uh, so you interviewed uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu today. Is there anything? I know it hasn't been screened yet, but is there anything you can tell us? As just, just you know, between us.
1: <laughs> well, uh, as um, as I like to say. Uh, uh, I'm not indiscreet. It's the people I talk to who are. Um, well, I'm sure we can keep this a secret between ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. Um, um, I had, uh, I had uh, some time with the Prime Minister earlier at the Kiria in Tel Aviv, uh, and we roamed over quite a lot of terrain um, from, uh, I mean, the thing I was particularly keen to get onto was what, what's happening next. I, I, one of my few insights since being here is, is that the Israeli public have, um, I don't think, I wouldn't like to say politically shifted in any direction, but they've, there's something that's clarified. There are certain things that are very obvious now in this country that maybe weren't obvious before the October the 7th, but the rest of the world is still in October the 6th. You know, I worry about this disconnect between what's obvious on the ground here and what the rest of the world thinks. So I asked him uh, not just about the, the current war in Gaza, but I, what I see as, as being a pretty inevitable war uh, with Hezbollah. We, talk, we talked about Qatar, which is, of course, just being caught, among other things, spying on two American senators, um, and whether or not Qatar is a, a partner for peace. Um. We talked about Iran and what may have to be done with iran and uh, i I wanted to talk about those big things because sometimes with politicians it's easy to get caught on um, as it were gossip you know and I think it's important not to be um, but i did get, I did get to ask him at the very beginning a question which has haunted me since I arrived here, and I was pleased to ask him on camera, which was um what I regard as being the trauma that this country is going through still. Uh, sometimes, some people talk about PTSD, but I don't think that Israel is in a PTSD stage. It's still in the trauma stage. And... The thing that has haunted me most since I arrived in terms of... You know, there's all the stuff, of, as it were, about the enemy, the other side, what they've done. Put that to one aside for a second. Um, the number of families, survivors, and others I've spoken to who've said to me that, you know, they told their children or wives or husbands or fathers, or whatever, you know, don't worry, the IDF will be here in minutes. Um, and I said to him, you know, what went wrong? Which is is, is a very difficult question, I think. And he, he answered it, uh, uh, quite politically, but ca- carefully, but honorably, I think. Um, but I, th- I, th- I think, t- for me, I wanted to start on that because that's, I feel, like a question which Israelis of all political types will have in mind, do have in mind, is just this, you know, we, we, we I say we, but you don't mind my saying so, but I mean we sort of relied on this a certain invincibility. Um, uh, the reliance on technology, the reliance on the intelligence, the reliance on the army, the military, the whole infrastructure. But it... And this is by no means to say, you know, what, everything that happened that day was all the responsibility of Hamas and Islamic Jihad and the other groups. But there's this thing of, but how on earth did it happen? You know I mean? You and I know, this is the country where Jews come to feel safe, really. And there was... To my mind, a wobble around that time. Maybe for some people, that wobble is still still going on. But I, I felt like that was a question that had to be asked.
0: I know that I, when I was down south in in Bury, I said to the uh, the senior officials there, "What would it What will it take for people to come back?" And he said, "We need to prove to them that we can keep them safe."
1: Yes, I mean that's it's it's. It's it's the same, and I mean it's it's less severe, of course, in the north because it, it wasn't the same incursion. But um, I've spent quite a lot of recent months living, accidentally, with residents of Kiryat Shimona, and um, we we make a rather odd collection of <laughs> people. Um, although my my friend Richard Kemp, who spent quite a lot of time here as well, said uh, he's a great man. Um,
0: uh, we'll he, tell him he got a round of applause in yeah, it. I, I, I,
1: I'm not gonna tell Richard that I'll say, I'll say I mentioned your name and everyone booed yeah, okay, okay. No, um, he's a wonderful man, uh, but uh, Richard Kemp mentioned the other week when somebody said um, Something about us being goys. He said um, he said I, I, he said I'd like to say is that um, I'm uh, Not only a Goy but a rather practiced uh, Shabbat Goy and um, <laughs> And he said, and um living with residents of Kiryat Shimona, my services have been rather extensively called upon. <laughs> um <laughs> he's definitely rather overqualified to go around flicking switches, but yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, I mean, it's and by the way, and the, 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 an interest, an interesting issue in the north and the south seems to me there is a slight there is a slight misunderstanding, I think, internationally in particular about this. Is, is in my observation, I mean, some of the people in the south and the north are, you know, they're sort of you know, committed in a way, of course, but it's not quite as ideological as it is for many people in Judea and Samaria, for instance. I mean, some people it is, and some of the kibbutz it is, but not everywhere. And that issue of just basic safety is, um, I mean, I i enormously admire the people who will move back there, but the, the preconditions of them doing so are very far from being in place. Um, and I do, by the way, I do wonder sometimes, I was at a, a, a Friday night dinner with some friends the other week and it was gloriously argumentative, as you'll be surprised to hear. Um, uh, you can guess which family it was, I'm sure. But uh, and it was a wonderful family. They had all the children. The idea of one of the fathers at one point later said, so, Iron Dome, good idea or not? Um, and, you know, that, that, in retrospect, is a thing about the South. I mean, of course, what shocks you in any place, any of the kibbutz there, what, what is shocking at first is that the, the, the bomb shelters didn't lock. But they weren't meant to lock, because they, this wasn't meant to happen.
0: Right. Uh, let's turn to an area that Stan with us is very involved with, the university campus. And so, of course, we saw the Congressional hearing, where three heads of major campuses, MIT, University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, were not able to unequivocally condemn calls for genocide against Jews on their campus. Uh, where have we got to, and where do we go from here? Did America take notice?
1: Well, it definitely took notice. Arguably the most successful congressional hearing for some years. I mean, wow, did that reverberate around the world. And rightly so. I mean, sometimes it's worth noting when something's really caught on and people have actually woken up to something. I mean, lots of people have diagnosed the rot in American higher education for, I mean, 40 years since since Alan Bloom published The Closing of the American Minds about what was going wrong on American campuses. And it's all gotten worse. Um, but the heads of the, – the, the fact that you would have the presidents of three such esteemed institutions proving themselves to be so amoral. Um, I actually have a, I have a friend who's at MIT who, who phoned me after the hearing and said um, – what do you think I said well among other things apart from sounding utterly immoral the presidents of the three colleges sounded like chat GPT <laughs> And of course it's because they're reading their highly lawyered answers off, you know, and it's all it's all about the risk of future litigation um, among, among other things it's this sort of You know I, I, and, and I said why did what's the name the one from U um, Penn she was sort of smirking? smirking as she was doing her answers, as if she was being so clever or precise. And um, my friend said, well, why don't we put the questions into ChatGPT and see what it says? (laughs) So we did. (laughs) And the answers were really very good. Uh, uh, ChatGPT, when asked about the question of genocide that so completely flummoxed Claudine Gay, said, genocide is recognized as wrong in every known moral system. Well, it turned out that the AI was more moral than the head of Harvard. <laughs> um, that was an interesting uh, experience. Uh, yes, I mean, the, the, but, but it's, it's, it's one of the first times there has been a price to pay for that. And I'm delighted about that. But I, I, I hope that the replacements are not simply equally immoral idiots who just happen to know how to tread around that landmine, which is possible. I, I mean, think, I think people do watch out for that.
0: And I think that the, the only reason they won't be is if we hold their feet to the fire. Absolutely.
1: So. absolutely. And by the way, also with, with funding, I mean, I, I'm bewildered by much to do with American higher education funding because it seems to me that Harvard, for instance, has an endowment of, I think, hundreds of billions of dollars. And, in my view, there's no reason why a higher education institute should have that money uh, when there are people who need scholarships, and it should pay down its endowment in education instead of sitting on this huge pot of money and um, and proving themselves to be an utterly immoral institution. Um, so I, I, I think that, and I think that people should just not donate to any of these colleges. So if anyone here is um, still doing so, I hope they don't. But um, it's really very important because, uh, as, as Andrew Sullivan said some time ago, you know, there was a time when we hoped that this idiocy would stay on American campuses. But as Andrew Sullivan wrote, we all live on campus now. Mm. And that is certainly the case in America. Everything that happens at the campuses ends up flooding through the rest of the culture, you know.
0: Many people are saying to Israel... You can't beat Hamas. You've set this goal, and I'm sure maybe you discussed it with the Prime Minister today. You've set this goal of completely defeating Hamas, but you can't defeat Hamas because it's an ideology. What's your response to that?
1: Well, it, there's, they often say it's an idea. That's another one. Ideology or an idea. Um, well, there's several things about that. The first thing is, I've heard that said a lot in campaigns against terrorist groups and others. There's always the claim for instance that if you fight the terrorist group you will create more terrorists Which is a logical cycle that does not work because of course that means that you should simply never fight terrorism Because if you do you'll create terrorists which means you just sort of have to stand back and take it Which doesn't seem to me viable? Um, The second thing about this is that it's just not true that you can't defeat a terrorist group you can you can defeat the leaders, certainly. You can kill or capture the leaders. That's eminently possible. I think there's a, I talked about this with the Prime Minister earlier a bit. I think there is a a complexity at the moment of, of having the mission of simultaneously destroying Hamas and also having to negotiate with Hamas. I think that is a very tricky juncture. Um, but, I mean, lots of ideas have been destroyed i mean you know nazism was destroyed um communism although it lingers again on american college campuses primarily but it lingers but it it was pretty much destroyed in 1989 1990 there are residue countries like north korea still v- vaguely trying versions of it but it was destroyed. Um, and it wasn't, it was partly also, of course, destroyed on the battlefield of ideas. Um, which is one of the reasons why it gives me great. I don't, you know, some people say, well, there are so many lies in the world, so many liars, so many horrible things being said by horrible people, and how can you possibly intend to, to pierce through them? And I always say that, that history is just filled with people who, destroyed bad ideas and the way in which communism was brought down is a very good example. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn was writing, could he have imagined the impact it had? The the vast crack on the Iron Curtain, the wall, that was caused by his work. When Václav Havel was writing, and working, he helped destroy this horrible idea, and communism was much, much more widespread than Hamas. So when people say it's not possible, I, th- I think, I think they're not imaginative enough. Among much else, <laughs> may I say we want something in closing. Sure. First of all, thank you to all of you um, for coming out tonight. Uh, There are quite a lot of things you can do on a Sunday night, so um, I'm very grateful to be able to spend the evening with you. Um, Secondly, let me just make one observation, if I may, a closing one. Uh, One of the most moving conversations I've had since I've been here was actually with a taxi driver the other week. And I say this with great hesitation because one of the rules of journalism is that you should never quote a taxi driver. (laughs) Not because taxi drivers cannot be filled with wisdom, but because it's journalistically lazy. Usually when somebody says, uh, because normally journalists say, I was speaking to a source the other day. (laughs) Yeah, you were putting in the hard work on the way way to the bar. Um, But... I was speaking to a tax driver the other day and he um, he turned out he'd served in 73 and so on. and he said something so moving to me, he said, um, we talked about what was going on, we had a child in the IDF and everyone else knew people who'd suffered on October the 7th and he said to me he said, I owe the younger generation an apology he said, I owe them an apology I said, why? he said, because I thought Young Israelis have become weak, and thought they spent all of their time on X, and, you know, Instagram, and WhatsApp. They would spend all their time doing influencer stuff. And I thought that they, if we faced a situation like 73, I thought they would. He said, I owe them an apology. They're remarkable. They've stepped up. And and I just just want to say in closing that that is one of the things that I take great hope from in this country. You know, and it's not just that the Israelis are doing well, that you're doing well, it's that I genuinely believe that the people of this country are giving an example to the world. When I speak to young people in this country who... 18 19 20 21 20. you know what are you doing I, I'm expert in intelligence in Yemen <laughs> you know and and you know I sort of say well well your, your contemporaries in America and Britain are like, wasting their lives with no concept of the world and no concept of the good they could actually do in the world and these young men and women are going' are going to be in their 30s and their late 20s and be remarkable people having done remarkable things and put through remarkable trials and having come through them. And I think that this is an example to the rest of the world. Everybody asks themselves, what would I do if, you know, the situation that my forebears went through? Everybody of my generation in UK thinks, what would we have done in my grandparents' generation? Young Israelis have shown what they would do in their grandparents' generation. And they've shown not just their grandparents, but the world. And I want not Israelis to compare themselves to the rest of the world. I want the rest of the developed democracies of the world. I want their people to compare themselves with the Israelis. Because if they do, it's them that will be found wanting.
0: This is a uh, country and very specifically a community that has been through a lot over the last few months. And uh, this has been equally uh, invigorating and inspiring. So thank you so very much, Douglas Murray.